also serves on the subcommittee of ministerial training uh, that is um, under our uh, Christian Education Committee and is one of the homiletics instructors for the Ministerial Training Institute of the OPC. He's written numerous articles for the OPC publications New Horizons and Ordained Servant, as well as magazines such as The Banner of Truth. Some of you may remember a series that uh, Bill did not too long ago on um, the riches of Spurgeon and uh, bringing out uh, how Spurgeon uh, handled scripture and some of the choice selections of his passages. So without any further ado, Pastor Shishko, Bill. Pontier is the John the Baptizer of your camp. He is a voice crying out. Uh, it's good to be with you. I, uh, I count it a real privilege always to minister the Word of God. The highest calling that God gives to any woman is to be a mother. But at least present biology being what it is, that's not possible for a man. So the highest calling God can give to any man is to be a minister of the gospel. And I esteem that calling and every opportunity to preach is the highest calling God can give to any sinner saved by grace. And it is a delight to be back with you in beautiful Southern California. The last time I was out here was in 1989. I was a fraternal delegate for the PCA General Assembly and at that time had the opportunity to preach in La Mirada as I did last night. Over the years, I've had a wonderful fellowship with so many of you who are here at General Assemblies. Now it's good to be on your turf and to enjoy fellowship here and the beautiful scenery. When I read that statement, and I'm still baffled by it, about molesting the wild animals. Someone, of course we live in New York, our wild animals are on two feet and walk the streets, and they're the ones that do the molesting. Um, but I expected that if there was any danger of molesting animals up here, the people for the ethical treatment of animals would be picketing the place. Uh, but they're not here, so I gathering there is no gather is no picketing or molesting of the animals. Um, I actually have uh, another purpose in being here, and that is um, our relatively new presbytery, the Presbytery of Connecticut and Southern New York is considering the possibility of having a family camp like this. Uh, we actually have a Southern California man, Calvin Keller, who's now in our church in Hamden, and has come close to volunteering to help, uh, help out with this project. So I'm here as an observer also to find out how you do things and to soak things in as well, um, because I'm hopeful we can do the same kind of thing out on the East Coast. Uh, one thing, I, I love singing and uh, I love to belt out a song. My voice isn't quite as strong as John the Baptizer's is over here, um, but if you find me not singing here, I am not protesting what you are doing. I have come away from two weeks that have been very demanding on my voice. Last weekend, not the other day, but the weekend before, we had what was dubbed the Intensive Training Weekend of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church subcommittee on ministerial training and I had no idea how intensive it was one 12-hour day another 11-hour day 
and then a Lord's Day working with our students. And after all that teaching and some preaching, my voice became rather weak and tired, and, and the flight out here and changes and beds and so forth haven't helped. So I'm at about 75% of my voice, so I'll have to cut down the singing. But I love to hear you folks sing, and you can make up for the singing I can't do by singing even more loudly. Let's pray as we ask God's blessing tonight. What I want to do this evening is take a few minutes. I want to give you a backdrop to what we're doing tonight, okay? And then we'll read Scripture and go into the material for tonight. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to fellowship together in the name of Christ. How good it is for us to enjoy your creation to enjoy the fellowship of one another and something other than the particular demands of the Lord's Day. We thank you for not only the adults, but the young people, the young adults, the children who are here. And we ask that you will superintend so that not only in the teaching and the preaching, but in all of the activities, Christ would be glorified and we would be in a special way prepared for the battle that we are to have until you take us to glory or until Christ returns. And now we ask that you will be with us in a special way this evening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and verses 1 through 15. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. I want to read from Genesis 3 and verses 1 through 15 and then Romans 8 and verses 5 through 8. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
And now please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and verses 5 through 8. Now we're going to come back to Genesis 3. But just these four verses in the book of Romans in the New Testament, verses 5 through 8. The word enmity is going to come up tonight. Now for you children, if you don't know what enmity is, you're going to find out. Okay. Notice how it comes up in Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And thus far, the reading of the infallible, inerrant, and finally authoritative word of the living God. Let me give you some background to what I'm going to do with you in the evenings, and then I think you'll see how it will fit with what I'm doing in the morning as well. The end of last year was not the end of the second millennium. It's actually the end of this year that is. When we come to January 1st, 2001, we'll be in the third millennium A.D. But everybody was thinking about the end of the millennium and the end of the century last year. And as a pastor, I uh, try to deal at points with the things on people's minds and focus on them and capitalize them. It took some time about this time last year just to think about and pray about a series to end the, the year with something that I thought would not only end what many people regarded as the end of the millennium, the end of the century, and that would be the most suitable series to prepare the people for a new millennium to come. And in the course of that reading and thought and prayer, I came across a reading and hardly a Reformed source, but a most interesting source, the late A.W. Tozer, who was a founder of the Christian Missionary and Alliance. I don't get my theology from A.W. Tozer. Uh, when he's good, he's very good. When he's bad, he's pretty poor. But A.W. Tozer, who died, I believe, in the 1960s, had his finger on the pulse of the evangelical climate of his day. And I came across this statement in an article that he wrote about 50 years ago entitled, This World, Playground or Battleground. Now, this is a rather lengthy quotation, and I won't have as many that are lengthy in speaking in the evening. I want you to follow me with this. Remember, it was written about 50 years ago. Tozer writes, Going no further back than the times of the founding and early development of our country, we were able to see the wide gulf between our modern attitudes and those of our fathers. In the early days, when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. Our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force, and they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. These were opposed to each other, and the nature of them forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable conflict. Man, so our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. For him, it must be life or death, heaven or hell. And if he chose to came out, come out on God's side, he could expect open war 
with God's enemies. The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. Men looked forward to heaven as a return from the wars, a laying down of the sword to enjoy in peace the home prepared for them. Sermons and songs in those days often had a martial quality about them or perhaps a trace of homesickness. The Christian soldier thought of home and rest and reunion, and his voice grew plaintive as he sang of battle ended and victory won. But whether he was charging into enemy guns or dreaming of war's end and the father's welcome home, he never forgot what kind of world he lived in. This world was a battleground, and many were the wounded and the slain. That view of things, writes Tozer, is unquestionably the scriptural one. Allowing for the figures and metaphors with which the scriptures abound, it still is a solid Bible doctrine that tremendous spiritual forces are present in the world and man because of his spiritual nature is caught right in the middle. The evil powers are bent upon destroying him while Christ is present to save him through the power of the gospel. To obtain deliverance, he must come out on God's side in faith and obedience. That, in brief, is what our fathers thought and that, we believe, is what the Bible teaches. But how different today, and I remind you, today was 50 years ago. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We're not here to fight. We're here to frolic. We're not in a foreign land. We're at home. We're not getting ready to live. We're already living. And the best we can do is to rid ourselves of our inhibitions and frustrations and live this life to the full. That this world is a playground instead of a battleground has now become accepted in practice by the vast majority of evangelical Christians. They might hedge around the question if they were asked bluntly to declare their position, but their conduct gives them away. They're facing both ways, enjoying Christ and the world too, and gleefully telling everyone that accepting Jesus does not require them to give up their fun and that Christianity is just the jolliest thing imaginable. You might want to get a copy of that and meditate on it. It's profound in its statement. And Tozer was absolutely right, and he is right. After reading that and pondering a bit, I formulated a series that I did in Franklin Square, a bit more lengthy, at least in terms of the evening messages and you got here, but you'll get the, the marrow of it a series entitled The Fight. And I am convinced that the theme that I'm dealing with all of you about in the evenings are the most important theme as we go into the new millennium. For those of you who are here who are ministers, there's no more important theme for you to keep in mind than the fact that the ministry and the building of the church is a battle. For those of you who are elders and deacons, you're entrusted with a responsibility to be overseers and servants officially in that battle. Parents, you are raising your children to be arrows in the quiver of the Lord. And children, while it's wonderful to have family camp and have a good time as you're meant to here, there's a time you're going to go down this mountain and you and I go back to a battle. That's why I regard this as the most important theme that I can deal with you about in a millennium. Now, what I want to deal with you tonight is a couple of matters. 
Number one, I want to convince you that there is a fight. I want to show you from the Word of God that you cannot avoid the fight. Second, I want to convince you that you must fight on the right side or you will lose eternally. I want that to sink in because it's true of all of you. There is a fight and you must fight on the right side or you will lose eternally. Now, parenthetically, let me tell you a little something about the way I preach and teach. I am not up giving you a lesson about the Bible with no concern about what you do with it. I take very seriously the fact that the preaching of the Word of God is to be applied and its goal is to see God's people changed by it. And so I come with a blood-earnest conviction that I want all of you in here, from the youngest to the oldest, to leave realizing we're in a fight. And you've got to fight on the right side or you're going to lose. And you know something of what that's about. Now I realize that I do have children here as well, as adults, and I haven't brought a whole lot of object lessons. I could have, I guess, but it's a bit difficult to pack them in the suitcase. So I'll try to make my words the object lesson. But for the children, I've even made some little green marks on my own notes, special words for children. And so if you're lost, children, I've learned over the years to look in your eyeballs. And if I know that if you're in fantasy land someplace rather than here, I'll try to stick something in especially for you. But let me give you a promise, okay? As a pastor, I love doing catechism classes with our children. And I'm going to use a little catechetical approach with you here tonight. Okay? And here's my catechetical, catechetical approach with the children. I can't move away from this thing. Steve, you assure me you're going to have... Well, I can take it out right now. I'll use it like this. This is my promise for the children. Okay? When you see me in the camp, if Pastor Shisko is too hard to say, you can say Pastor S. How's that? Okay? And in order to help you to listen... And I realize there's some things you might not understand. You have got permission to come to me at any point in the camp when you can get me and say, Pastor Shisko, I didn't understand one thing about what you said last night. Could you explain some of that to me? Hopefully it won't be that bad, okay? But you can ask me questions about what I'm speaking on, okay? Just say, Pastor S, could you explain this? Or... But here's my promise. If you don't ask me questions... I may very well ask you some. Like I might ask this young lady up here, do you know the title of my message, my series? Do you know the title? I'll give you a hint. It's the fight. Okay? Now, what is your name? What is it? Oh, Jennifer. Oh, is your name Jennifer? And you're, or is that Jennifer? Oh, you're Jennifer. Do you know her name? What's her name? Carrie? Okay. All right, Carrie, what's the title of the conference? I don't bite. It's the fight, right? Okay, that's what you were going to say. All right, so for the children, I really do want you to listen. And I'll try not to use too many big words or speak too fast. Okay, here we go for tonight. I want you to have your Bibles open, please, to Genesis 3 and verse 15. And here's what I'm going to do this evening. I have four points. Actually, they're in your little booklet here, okay? So if you turn in your booklet to page 9, title tonight, You Can't Escape the Fight. Even the text is up here, Genesis 3.15. 
And I've got the five or four points for tonight. Fill them in as you want. Number one, Genesis 3.15 teaches that there is an inescapable warfare. All that you believe about the Bible or all that you might want to believe about the Bible, all you might want to do about the Bible cannot change the fact that there is an inescapable warfare. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity for the children. Any of the children know what enmity means? Do you know what enmity means, young lady? You don't know what it means. Do you know what enmity means? You want to guess? It has something to do with the title of the message tonight. Do you know what enmity means? I know you're not a young lady, but you're a young man. You're very close. The word enmity sounds like enemy. So if you have an enemy, you are at what with an enemy? You're at war. Enmity means warfare. Okay. Now the reason I use enmity is because that's the word that's used here, and so we'll use it. So for you children, first thing for you to learn from this, the word enmity means what? Warfare. Excellent. Very good. Now God says that there will be warfare between you, that is between the serpent and the woman. Parenthetically, that's the reason why there are struggles throughout life and will be until Jesus comes back and why he says there will be wars and rumors of wars. There is an inescapable warfare. This is the first of three curses that God put on the earth due to man's sin. The woman, as you read in verse 16, is going to, as part of the curse, have tremendously multiplied sorrows and tremendously multiplied conceptions. That's why there are sadly miscarriages and why there's pain in delivering a child. Ladies, when you remember the pain of labor, and my wife knows about the pain of labor, she's gone through it six times, and I've been there with her each time so I know something of it. And having had three kidney stones, I also know something of the pain of labor. And when you go through the pain of labor, you can thank Adam and Eve for it because that is why it's there. There will be pain and sorrow and multiplied conception. Also, the woman will desire to dominate the husband and the man will rule or tyrannize the wife. That's the second effect of the curse. For the man, the man will labor, he will toil, he will work with sweat, he will work with thorns and thistles. Dr. McHarg loves thorns and thistles, but for most of us, it's a source of labor and pain and sorrow and there will be sweat. And for man and woman, there will be death. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But the first of the curses is, I will put enmity between you and the woman. It is sovereignly placed there by God. There is a cosmic drama in which animals and man and the whole creation groan. Romans 8 teaches very eloquently the whole creation groans and travails it is subjected into bondage and part of that is the bondage of an enmity sovereignly placed there by God specifically notice it is between you it is Satan and the woman specifically it is between Satan and the woman the serpent is cursed as a symbol it's interesting that the serpent is subtle and that subtlety under the curse becomes the means by which the devil works 
in the world. Many Christians think that the devil works by the brute force of a very powerful northern Sudanese Muslim army. Now, it's not that the devil doesn't use that. That's not really the way the devil works. The devil is cunning. He is clever. And that is part of the effect of the curse that comes upon him. And the devil lives with a symbolic reminder of his ultimate defeat because he will go on his belly and will eat dust all of the days of his life. So there is an inescapable warfare specifically between Satan and the woman, but it goes beyond the devil. That's going to lead us to the second point. But before we get to it, this. My friends, this world is not normal. This world is not a normal world. It lives under the effect of a curse that God has put on every man and on every woman and on every boy and on every girl and on the devil and there reigns of that effect in all the world. You can't get away from it. It's interesting. All the religions of the world other than Christianity want to speak in some way of this world as being normal. You can just by normal means come to another way to heaven. Not so. God says right from the beginning this world is abnormal. And the big part of the abnormality of it is that, as I said here, there is an inescapable warfare. And you can no more escape that warfare than you can escape gravity. You know, when people say they don't believe in God, you love to be able to answer the fool as his folly deserves. And they love to say, well, you know, you can say you don't believe in gravity too. But if you are up in a plane and you can somehow get out of that plane and jump, you will find out very soon. Even if you're saying all the time, there's no gravity, there's no gravity, there's no gravity, there's no gravity, you will find out in a very short time that there is gravity. And so you will find out very soon that there is God. You cannot escape this warfare any more than you can escape gravity. There's an inescapable warfare. Look at what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. But now notice in the second place, as it says in your outline, it is a warfare between seeds and between your seed, and at least in the New King James, there's like a small s, and then her seed and a capital S. We'll come to that in a little bit. It wouldn't be that way in the Hebrew, but it makes the point well. Between your seed and her seed. Now, for you children, I know that this would be one of the hardest things for our children to try to understand. They say, what on earth does this have to do with a watermelon seed or a cantaloupe seed or a corn seed? Why does this, what does this have to do with it? Well, seed is a term that refers to the children that come forth from mommy and daddy. You say, why does God use the word seed? Well, again, as Dr. McCarg can explain to you very well, when you get seeds from a plant, you want to think of that plant. What's, what's your favorite plant, young man? Do you, have a, you know what a plant is, right? You know, in New York, you have to explain it to them. Uh, they, they, uh, but I, you're from California. What's your favorite plant? Corn. That's a good one. I like corn too. All right. Now you know you you know where you get the seeds from a corn. You don't. You've eaten a lot of them. You're eating corn on the cob. You might have had some of those little corns tonight over there. Well, you know the little old yellow things that you eat that are so good with butter. Enjoy that while you're young. And salt and pepper. Those are the seeds. Okay. And inside of those seeds, before they're cooked, there's all the stuff.
stuff necessary to make another corn. Okay, or corn plant and corn. Okay, so you think of that corn as the mother or the daddy corn and the seeds as little baby corn. Okay, so for you children, that's why the Lord uses the word seed. Okay, something comes forth from your mommy, from your daddy, that has all of the stuff in it to make another human being. Okay, so when the Lord uses the word seed here between your seed and her seed, when he says it is a warfare between seeds, what he means is there are going to be two sets of children that are going to be born. There are going to be children from the devil and there are going to be children from the woman. Where does the devil have children? Jesus gives an astounding answer to that. In John 8, Jesus is dealing with the very religious people of His day. This was the creme de la creme of religious people. They had the Old Testament. They knew the law. They had the ordinances. They could have taught anyone the things of the Old Testament. And Jesus said, I have a message for you. You are your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not abide in the truth, for there is no truth in him. He said, you Pharisees are the seed of the devil. You are murderers. You are liars and you are slanderous. Now you know why the Pharisees wanted to put Christ to death. Now, were these people born of a real man and a real woman? Yes. But in terms of their real parentage, they had the family resemblance of the devil. That's the seed of the devil. seed of the woman we'll get to a little bit later. But the point is, there is a seed of the devil and a seed of the woman. Now, it's interesting that in this, the Lord says, when He says there's going to be enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, there's an interesting little promise that's in here. What He's saying is, there is going to be a seed. There's going to be children until Jesus comes back. Until Jesus comes back, there's going to be people who are born. You don't have to worry about an asteroid destroying the earth 1,000 years before Jesus comes back. Not going to happen. There will be real people, real men and real women who are on the earth there will be a seed of the woman. But until Jesus comes back, there will also be a seed of the devil. This is a promise that humanity will not be destroyed. And there's also a promise that God's grace will form a seed that in principle is opposed to Satan's seed because he's got your seed, that is the seed of the devil, like the religious leaders, and her seed a seed that would be in principle opposed to Satan's seed. Now the point is, there's going to be strife between these seeds. Every aspect, every element of an emerging, developing humanity would be at war with the seed of the devil. Now I want you to think about that. There will be a seed of the woman. A godly seed. You'll see why that's the case a little bit later. And there will be a seed of the devil. An ungodly seed. And there will be constant, irreconcilable warfare. And no place is not the battlefield. Enmity between your seed and her seed. If I could put it this way. There's kind of a moral or spiritual 
genetic disorder that affects everything. See, our culture today thinks of everything in terms of genetics. Well, genetics and the chemical makeup of DNA and RNA cannot explain the spiritual nature of man. But let's use the language. Let's imagine that there is a moral or a spiritual genetic makeup of some sort, kind of a metagenetics. And there will be within that constant struggle between the seed of the man or the woman and the seed of the serpent. You want some illustrations of it? Right away. Cain and Abel. And Cain slays his brother. There is a warfare that shows itself in the first two children of Adam and Eve. You don't have to go much further to see the warfare that comes. We read of Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Cain was of the seed of the devil and murdered his brother. Noah, in his generation, Noah condemned his generation. Here's a generation of people who don't believe what God has said and they mock Noah and he is at war with them. What's his weapon? He builds an ark for the salvation of his own household. Not too far down the line, Israel faces Egypt and there is an irreconcilable warfare between them where when a Pharaoh rises up who does not know Joseph seeks to limit the Israelites' power. They seek to destroy all of the children of the Israelites, at least the males, to limit the way they grow. Israel goes into Canaan. And why do you have a book of Joshua and a book of Judges? Because there is a warfare between Israel and Canaan. What was the meaning of Daniel on the plain of Dura with his friends having to be called to bow down to the statue? There's a warfare between Babylon representing the world and the people of God. So why in the Bible do you read so much about warfare? That's a comment people make when they begin to read the Bible. They say, boy, the, the Bible is so full of warfare. And it is. And because there's irreconcilable warfare between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. Romans 3 teaches that there's warfare in the world. Why? Because God has put the poison of snakes and the tongues of men and women and boys and girls and feet are swift to run to shed blood. And that is in every nation, on every continent, in every person until Jesus comes back. God has put it there as part of the curse on man. May I ask you why there's a massacre in a Columbine high school? And why some Christians were singled out to have bullets put through their head when they would not deny Christ. It is not first because of boys who had polluted themselves by the music they'd listened to. It's because there is an irreconcilable warfare between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. Why do people go to a Wedgwood Baptist church and shoot young people at a youth meeting? It's because there's an irreconcilable conflict between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. Why is there a persecution that will soon rival the Holocaust in Germany, in South Sudan? It's because there's an irreconcilable warfare between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. You go down the line, whether it's China or the 100,000 Christians who are in prison camps in North Korea, it's because there's an irreconcilable conflict. Now, why do I say that? Because your newspaper is one of the constant proofs every day of what the Christian faith says. There's an obituary column in all newspapers 
That's a proof of what God says when He says, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And when you read of the warfare against God's people, it's not because of the political party that's in power. It's because there's a seed of the devil and a seed of the woman. An irreconcilable conflict, not just between the devil and the woman, but between the seeds proceeding forth from them. And I want you to note that we cannot overstate the power of that enmity. can't do it. Young people, let me tell you what that enmity is like. If you can imagine being at a zoo. How many of you children have been to a zoo? You have a big zoo in Los Angeles, don't you? Okay. How many of you like to go to the caged animals? You know, the, the, the lions and the tigers and the bears, the real vicious ones. How many of you like that? Really, really, you're honest. You really do like that? Have you ever seen those animals at feeding time? They really are loud, aren't they? Sometimes they get very vicious if they wait too long. You know what this world is like? This world is like a bunch of caged, penned-up, hungry, ferocious animals. The seed of the devil. And if God did not put them behind a certain amount of iron bars by restraining grace, they would be let loose and they would destroy everything in sight. And it's an amazing thing that God restrains sin as He does. If you're outside of Christ, at best, you're a penned-up animal. Remember what Jesus says. He says, in essence, if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. And God can allow that hatred to turn into murder because there's a seed of the devil from which that murder and that hatred comes. So it's a warfare between seeds. Now, in the third place tonight, Notice that it culminates in a seed and between your seed, singular, and her seed, capital S as it is here, singular. This warfare culminates in a seed. And this seed is a representative hero who is to come from the seed of a woman. And I love that. Do you know why God has programmed, if I can use that word, people to want to have a hero? It's because God in the Old Testament is called El Gibor, the God hero, the God who is victorious, the God who is honorable, the God who vanquishes the enemy, the God who is perfectly right. And so God has put into every man and woman and boy and girl a desire for heroes. And your hero needs to be met in God. So parents, when your children go through the heroic age, what other heroes you teach them Make sure you teach them that God is the great hero of His people. Well, this is a representative hero who is to come forth from a seed. And that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know that? Isaiah 14, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now, virgins, as you well know, do not conceive as virgins. But the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary. And she would give birth to Jesus without any human seed impregnating her. And so there's that unusual expression, her seed, for there was no male seed. The seed came from God. Her seed is Christ, who would oppose ultimately the devil himself, if you will. This is the gospel in seed form. It speaks of Christ's humanity. A human being would come forth from a woman. It speaks of Christ's identity with man. He is a human being, a seed as we are, but He would be sinless. 
because there would be no human paternity. And the Old Testament people was saved by faith in that seed promise just as you are. But notice that there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. The devil and Jesus are direct opposites in their natures and in their work. Let me list some of these things for you. And I want to preface it by saying that at every point, this is what the devil is. And at every point, this is what Jesus is. Some examples. You can come up with some others, but this was my list. The seed of the serpent, the devil, and his people, but ultimately the devil, is a deceiver. He's clever. The devil's not going to come in and say, I am coming to you with error. He'll trick you. He is a deceiver, and his seed is deceiving. Jesus says, I'm the way. You know what a way is when you have a trail up here. You're looking and you're trying to go up the mountains, and you look and you say, Well, that looks like it might be a trail. And your wife who was with you says, Ah, appearances can be deceiving up here. But it looks like a trail. Ah, it's deceiving. You go down a little way and you say, Ah, there's a sign. Here's the trail and you follow it. That's the way. Well, that's Jesus. He is the way. The devil and his seed, a deceiver. The devil is a liar. All lies come from the devil. Jesus is the truth. Incidentally, don't be surprised that you hear lies. When the devil's a liar and a seed is always in the world, right? But we ought to be people of the truth and not partaking of the lie. The devil is a murderer. That's why there's always murder in the world. There's always a seed of the devil. Jesus gives life. The devil is a slanderer. He is an accuser. The gospel is not accusing you of sin, although you will feel very convicted of your sin. Jesus is the one who forgives. Why is there always slander and accusation in the world? Because there's a very real devil. The devil is evil. The seed of the woman is righteous. The devil hurts. He's a destroyer. Jesus is the helper. The devil brings misery. And if any of you in here are toying with not being faithful to Christ, I want to give you a promise. You don't follow Jesus as the seed of the woman. And you follow the devil. And you are inviting a life of misery. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay? The devil brings misery. The devil is the one who will bring sin. Jesus brings righteousness. The devil is a destroyer. Jesus saves. The devil is the one who brings hatred. Jesus is the one who brings meekness and love. The devil is the one who brings slavery. Jesus brings freedom. And folks, those dynamics are going to continue until Christ returns. I say this as a post-millennialist too. I believe the gospel is going to have tremendous influence in all of the world. Can't have it a falling away. Can't have an apostasy if there's not a prevailing profession of Christianity. But, despite what many of my post-millennialist friends might say, when the seed of the woman and the power of Jesus is great, the devil's even more vicious. 
and it's going to come until Jesus comes back. Okay. So my amillennialist friends say, ah, you're really an amillennialist. I am an optimistic amillennialist, just like you. And I say, no, 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 you're a postmillennialist without conviction. But there will be that kind of a struggle until Jesus comes back. Satan, you will notice in this, will bruise the head of Christ or the heel of Christ. He shall bruise your head. We'll come to that. And you, that is the seed of the woman. Ultimately, the devil shall strike Christ's heel. You will bruise his heel. That means he'll strike from behind because the devil is a supplanter. He had to work through a deceitful Judas so that Jesus could be betrayed. It wasn't a frontal attack on Christ. It was a betrayal of Him. He was a supplanter. But He will only strike your heel. It won't be a mortal blow. Jesus will breathe His last and three days later He will conquer sin and death. And my friends, the disciple is not above. And if you are tempted to overestimate this warfare, wait till you get done the morning sessions. I get shivers up my spine just going over the notes for the morning sessions. And you will see in the morning material how the devil works through our own flesh in constant warfare. So it culminates in a seed, a seed of the devil and a seed of the woman, the seed of the woman being bruised by Satan, but not with a mortal blow, but one seed will be victorious. Thank God for that statement. And He, that is the seed of the woman, ultimately Christ, He shall bruise or shall crush your head. And that's a tremendous encouragement. What? That God says, I have ordained that I will do battle with you. Because that word there is He will bruise your head. It is decreed by my power. He will crush your head. Satan works until Jesus comes back to oppose that promise. Well, you want a picture of futility. That's it. He meets his match in three ways. Number one, the Father has decreed that Satan's head will be crushed. That means he will be defeated dramatically climactically and completely by the seed of the woman. God has decreed it. And only a fool will rage against God's decree. The Son's blood assures it. Because the devil accuses by saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And Jesus' blood cries from the cross saying, forgiven, 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 forgiven. And the devil can't win. And the Holy Spirit's power is far, far, far infinitely greater than the devil's power. And God's people overcome, interestingly enough, God's people overcome because God's curse goes before them. You ever thought about that? God's people overcome because God's curse on the devil goes before them. The devil rages like a roaring lion. And you, my dear friend, can say that devil's already cursed by God. And for that reason, I and all others in Christ will be victorious. Satan's head will be crushed. I love the story of the mighty man 
who slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. That's amazing. I didn't even know they had snowy days in Israel, let alone slaying a pit, a lion in a pit on a snowy day. You want to know where that is? Read it, the tail end of David's life. You'll find out who it is. One of David's three mighty men. But there's a far mightier man who slew the devil on a cross on a dark day. And I love that language. He disarmed principalities and powers. The devil and all of his angelic instruments would marshal all cosmic power to destroy even the elect of God. Jesus says, take away all your weapons. He disarmed principalities and powers having triumphed over them by the cross. The devil's like a snake that's got fangs defanged, disarmed. And he can hiss and he can writhe. And if you're like me, I hate snakes even if I know they don't have any fangs in them. And so we don't like the devil. We're meant to be those who don't like the devil. We learn that from not liking snakes. Now if you like snakes, please don't take that comment as an offense. You'll have to explain to me why you like them. But the point is, in most cases, we don't like snakes. Incidentally, for you children, a couple of years ago I was in Uganda. In Uganda they have a long, long, I didn't see one. I knew that there were some a little bit far away. I didn't want to get close enough to see it. The black mamba. And... Um, I guess the black mambas get about 12 to 15 feet long. That's enough to scare me away. And uh, they are the only snake known to man that actually will attack you. Most snakes will go away unless you attack them. But they will take it upon themselves to attack you until they meet a group of Ugandans with punga sticks and like a machete. And the Ugandans hate snakes. And when they see a black mamba, they know quite literally that if they don't kill the snake, the snake's going to kill their children. And you can see out in fields further out, these groups of Ugandans, a whole posse of them, several dozens of them, with machete, punga sticks. And they'll go after the black mamba. And what's the first part of the black mamba they go for? They go for the head. They get the head, and they lop off the head. And then they'll hack that thing up so fast, there's just little bits of it left. But if you didn't hack it up so quickly, the black mamba would continue to writhe around for a good while because of reflex. That's what the devil is right now. He's still writhing around even though the power of his head has already been crushed dramatically by the cross. All authority, too, is given to Christ. What would otherwise be a curse is a blessing to those who are in Him. Jesus, in principle, crushed the head of Satan on the cross. Jesus will one day cast the devil into hell. In the interim power, Jesus, in the interim time, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And devil, you're not going to win. So there's a fight. But the devil's already lost. And my friends, no matter how bleak or how dark this world seems, don't you ever lose sight of that. I'm going to tell you a form of unbelief that is bleeding the evangelical church in our land. It's this. It's that silly idea that if a certain administration, you can call it Republican or call it Democrat, gets into power, surely the devil has won in our country and Jesus really lost. And my friend, if you hold that view, I call you to repent of your wicked unbelief. Because Jesus will take a William Jefferson Clinton or an Al Gore or a George Bush and any others who may come past them, 
and he will use them as his tools to build his kingdom because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and parents you'll notice that's one of your questions for tonight you teach your children they always got to stand for what's right and oppose what's wrong but even when this world seems to be filled with devils and horrible power Jesus will take those things to build his church the devil never wins he's always the loser even though there is always this enmity and it's interesting that deliverance of God's people always comes by destruction of his enemies God destroys sometimes those little temporal enemies of his church such as the northern Sudanese one day he'll destroy the power of sin and death God always gets the victory by destroying his enemies. That's why there's imprecatory psalms that we are to learn to use. But that's for another time. So what you've seen tonight is there is an inescapable warfare. It's a warfare between seeds. It culminates in a seed, and one seed will be victorious. Now, two lines of application tonight. Number one, I want to call all of you, young people especially, you commit yourselves that you'll be 100% committed to following Christ. Because if you don't, you're going to lose. And you're going to lose forever. Now there's many reasons to be committed Christians. That's the one I want to impress upon you tonight. And if you have any doubts, any doubts, about whether 100% commitment to following Christ is the only way to go. I will stay up all night long, despite the rule, lights out at 11 o'clock, to persuade you with every ability in me that you don't live like that. That's how serious I'm about it. Number two, there's a fight, and you must fight. And if you're going to do it, you're going to have to learn to live on a wartime economy. I've said all that tonight to say this because you see, as Christians, we may believe there's warfare, but we don't live in a wartime economy. What's a wartime economy? Well, I wasn't born during World War II. My mom lived then, and my dad did, and I certainly learned an awful lot from my elders, and you've got older people here who can tell you about it. You know what a wartime economy is? In World War II, when we were fighting in Europe with the Germans, the Nazis, and we were fighting in the Pacific with Japanese, from about 1943, 1944, through the war, period, everyone was involved in a wartime economy. You never threw out rubber things because that rubber had to be recycled. In fact, you could get penalties, as I believe, if you used your disposed of rubber without the proper way. You even had to save golf balls. Golf balls. Because there was cork in the golf balls and no cork was to be wasted. It was to be used for the war effort. Tin cans. You didn't recycle them. You took them and used them, put them someplace for the war effort. I even had a friend of mine who told me that he, with all seriousness, said that he would pick up gum wrappers for scrap paper to be used for the war effort. You were taught to think of every single thing that you had that was to be used in one way or another for the war effort. My grandparents had a restaurant at the time. They committed themselves to take several hours every week just to make food for the troops who were going overseas. That was part of the war effort. You rationed things. That was part of the war effort. You used things differently and thought differently because that was part of the war effort. 
My friends, we need to repent of living on a spiritual, peacetime economy. Because you're at war. And every single thing that we use is to be put to the use of the warfare on the side of Christ. Everything. Every bit of time. Every writing of your pen. Every piece of paper. All that you do. Now, does that mean you don't have a family camp? No, you do have a family camp. You know why? Because troops have to be prepared for battle. And you know, believe it or not, even soldiers in battles had to sleep. I used to walk out, watch all those old John Wayne movies. And I used to ask, when did the soldiers sleep? They used to sleep when they weren't filming the movie. But in a real war, you have to sleep. You've got to get rest. But you go back to the war. And my friends, listen. I want you and me to repent of living on a wartime economy. Everything we do is to focus on the warfare in which we are 100% committed to the Lord Jesus Christ only. That's why Paul says we're to use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. And I want to challenge all of you make some changes. Maybe some specifics. I'm not saying you have to do this because I don't have any authority to say this beyond the Word of God. But I can get you thinking about some things. Have some of you who have good pension plans and good investments ever thought about an early retirement so you can serve in a mission field as a missionary associate? I know this world, this nation, California is a mission field. The other places your help can be used. Young people, have you thought about taking some of your free evenings, inviting some of your friends over to your home and saying, Mom, Dad, could we have a Bible study in our home so we can tell my friends about the Lord Jesus? Have you thought about taking some of your pennies and your dimes and your nickels beyond your tithe and saying, I want to put this aside for some specific project to spread the gospel to others? Because that's how this war is fought. Mom and Dad, could we take some of the things that we'd be getting at Christmas time and could we send them to perhaps some Christians who are poor overseas to encourage them? No, God doesn't tell you you have to do that. But God does tell you you're in a war. And in a war, everything is done. To oppose the enemy, to build up the morale of the troops, and to fight yourself. And I want to challenge you that that's the way we're all meant to live. I mean, listen to the words of one of the songs that we sing. Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Do you believe that? Listen to what it says. Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. As you talk about these things tonight and tomorrow morning, please commit yourself, as I promise I will do, that you'll go forth from this camp to live in a wartime economy with a great confidence that, praise God, you're on the winning side. Let's pray. Our great victorious King Jesus, we magnify your awesome name for you have triumphed over principalities and powers. You have spoiled their abilities. You have in principle 
crushed the head of the devil and bound him by your own 